We live in a society that rewards having. Having a nice house, a fancy car, an important job title, a college degree, or a fit body. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things. I have or have had all of those things. But where we run into trouble is when we allow having these things to define who we are. In other words, when our internal value is derived from having these external things. We feel we need to have these things in order to be worthy, to be enough. So we often do or act from a place of unworthiness in order to get these things so that we and others will consider us to be worthy. But what if we flip that script? What if we start from a place of being worthy, of being enough, and then do the work for the things we desire from a place of self-compassion? What if you, as a spiritual entity, already are and always have been enough? Welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm a certified personal trainer and nutrition coach, and my mission is to help you get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a great show for you today. Andy Petronic is with us to share his thoughts on how to become a better human. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Living Libations. Living Libations create the world's purest body and skincare products on the planet. They have a full line of beauty products, including skin cleansers, hair care, deodorant, oral care, makeup, perfumes, colognes, and so much more. I personally have used these products exclusively for over five years now. You are probably familiar with the term gut microbiome, but did you know that your skin, which is your largest organ, also has a microbiome? And when we use commercial beauty products that contain harsh ingredients such as parabens and phthalates and fragrances, we destroy our skin's natural microbiome. Here's a fun experiment. Go to your bathroom and grab your phone, you're going to need Google for this, and pick out a few of your favorite hygiene products and start Googling the ingredients. Now, compare that to the ingredients in Living Libations products, typically only wild harvested essential oils and water. And guys, this applies to you as well. They have a full line of men's products, including soaps, deodorants, shampoos, and shaving creams. So if you're looking to detoxify your life and upgrade your health, check these guys out. You can find their full line of products over at livinglibations.com. And because you're a listener of this show, you can get 10% off everything when you use the coupon code SILVEREDGE. That's Silver Edge all run together. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with today's show. My guest today is Andy Petronic. Andy has a fascinating story. He was a musical prodigy as a child, then went on to join the Marines, ran eco-challenges, and eventually became a Red Bull-sponsored adventure racing athlete. He was a CrossFit Games athlete, and he opened one of the most successful CrossFit gyms in the world, and he co-founded the Whole Life Challenge. He was on top of the world. He had accomplished so much. 
But all of that came suddenly and unexpectedly crashing down when he became paralyzed by anxiety and severe panic attacks. What happened? How did this former Marine, CrossFit athlete, sponsored adventure racer end up here? And while that's a fascinating part of this story, it's not as nearly compelling as what came next. Join us this week as Andy shares his incredible story, his rise and his fall, and how he rebuilt and reimagined himself to become a professional life, leadership, and performance coach who helps people create greater levels of confidence, joy, fulfillment, and success in their lives. I started out by asking Andy to share some of his background. Do you want the long version, the short version? I want the long I version. I could go for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I got time if you got time. Yeah, let's um, have it. All right. God, where do I start? So first, I grew up as a musician, which is which. the only reason I start with that is because it's such a different, it's, it's so different than what people expect. Because all my life after college was all athletics and sports and fitness and all this other stuff. But I, my first 18 years of my life, I grew up in a family of professional musicians. My mom and dad were both conductors and violinists. And my mom went to the Eastman School of Music. And I, I mean, I played probably eight instruments before I was 10 years old. I settled, I didn't settle on, but I was really good at the trumpet. And that became my primary instrument. And I actually got into the Eastman School of Music and went there for my freshman year. And then I discovered other things. <laughs> discovered fraternities, beer, women, and I lost interest really in, in music, being a professional musician anyway, and completely switched gears. And the cool thing that, you know, I don't know that I really realized how cool it was when it, when it occurred, but my mom just, my mom, my dad wasn't really in the picture a whole heck of a lot. He was a, he was a alcoholic and was not around a lot of my childhood, but my, my mom supported me a hundred percent. Like she was like, you never, you don't really know what the, the musical background gave you or gave me. And, you know, other than a great foundation in life and discipline and all these other things that I learned through my excelling at the trumpet. And, you, you know, she was like, look, you don't know how that's going to play out in your life. So just live your life and do what you love. And let's hope that that uh, leads to something else. And it did. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, it did, and we're going to get there certainly. All right, so it's, you start out early, that, so that's interesting, right? You had a love for music, obviously musically inclined parents. I don't know you that I sit. had a love for music. I oh, was that right? Well, okay. I mean, how would you know? It was more of a I didn't know any. Then. I didn't know anything else. I mean, uh -huh. I really, I had no, you know, I mean, I was wearing like a, a suit and a tuxedo before I was three years old. Wow. So, you know, I just was born into it, and it You're was everywhere. And we li yeah. we listened to classical music at home on the radio. You know, I could, I could probably, my wife always jokes with me because I know so little pop culture or I used to know so little pop culture, but I could tell you any symphony that was on the radio, you know? So it's not that I, and I love music. So it's not that I don't love music. It's just that I don't know that I ever thought I had a choice. So that's an interesting, that's a rel relatively recent revelation of, you know, when looking back in my life. Okay, so it's fair to say that you were good at music, and then you got, ex I mean, obviously you were good at music, right? You got yeah. accepted to this university, you're there, and your freshman year, like a lot of freshmen, you discover things other than what you grew up with. Yep. And did that have a transformative effect on your life? Where, where do you go from, from there? What happens? Yeah, I mean, you know, I also, this is kind of a strange piece also, my, my dad and, and grandfather were both in the military, 
And when I was looking at colleges, my mom suggested that I look at at the Navy as a potential scholarship for school. And not knowing the difference, really, I just said, well, why not? The idea of flying jets or being in a submarine or a ship seemed like a really cool adventure. So I applied for the scholarship and, and lo and behold, I got it. And so I think also influenced my decision-making into my, like I was on a destroyer in the Mediterranean. So I got, I was in Israel, I was in Italy, I flew through, through Sicily. It was, it was incredible. I mean, I, I, I like, it was like seeing the world, seeing Europe, being on this ship. I came back and I was like, how could I not say yes? Like, how, of course I want to do this. This is fantastic. And then I decided because I couldn't see 20, I didn't have good enough eyesight. I, I thought I was wanted to fly, but I, I was clear that I didn't want to sit in the back seat of a jet. And so I shifted from that to going into the Marines, which if you're of an, if you have a Naval ROTC scholarship, the Marines in some ways fall under the branch of the Navy. And so I spent a week with the Marines my, the summer of my sophomore year, and I really resonated with the esprit de corps, the attention to detail, the just the way the Marines carried themselves and the way the officers, because I was going to be an officer after graduating from college, the way the officers and the enlisted, while there's a difference, they're the, the physical requirements and the job requirements are, the, are essentially the same. Every Marine is a rifleman and everyone's trained the same way. In the Navy, not so much. In the Navy, there's a big disparity between what the officers do and the enlisted do, their jobs. And that, that the, Marine, the Marine Corps really appealed to me. So yeah, it, it had a big effect. Yeah, that's quite a jump as I'm sitting here listening to that. I'm thinking, okay, from musician to all you ever knew to this party, party kid who's discovering, like you said, alcohol and parties in France and girls to the Marines. Which huh. I'm gonna guess is a much different environment than what you grew up in, right? I'm I'm guessing more that kind of unregimented, that artistic side of the brain, and then you get over here to this military, something completely different. Is that fair? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I think that there's the discipline that I needed in order to excel at music with around practicing and and showing up, and yeah, you know, I mean, I think that helped in in terms mm-hmm. of the the discipline that was required to show up for the Marine Corps and the training that went into going to officer candidate school and going into the basic school. But it certainly was a different environment. You know, I think the other thing that I mentioned that my, my dad wasn't really in the picture a lot growing up, I I think this wasn't something I was conscious of. You know, it wasn't like this went into the decision-making process, but I think that I was really looking for some sort of a rule book for how do you be a man? Like, what does it mean to be a man? How do you be a man? I didn't really have... My grandfather was a good role model. But I didn't relate to him because he was really old. He was, you know, he was in his 70s and 80s. And so, I, I, you know, I felt like that, not, not the ugly duckling, but I just felt like a loner. Like I didn't really know I needed the rule book. I, that's, that's, that's the best way for me to put it. And the Marine Corps certainly gave you a set of rules. <laughs> the Marine book will, yeah, the Marine Corps will definitely give you the, the uh, rule book, won't they? Yeah. All right. So they whip you into shape, right? I mean, probably physically and in all other ways, right? They're, yeah. they're now this kind of this role model. You've got this discipline and this structure in your life. Coming out of that, where do you go from there? Because well, I, I know you've you know, gone on to do some yeah, that's, interesting that's a, things. That's a place that a lot of people struggle, you know, because- that transition? Yeah, when you when you become a marine, the, the whole purpose of boot camp and their training is to remove elements of who you were 
and insert the the marine version of who you are, who you're going to be. And that's a tough thing to undo, to, to get back to. And it can be also very overwhelming searching for what to do because you've always had a mission. You've always had a job. A lot of former military will go into the you know police department, fire department. It's a, it's a very similar mission-based system and something you can very very easily relate to. And in fact, I've done quite a lot of work with, with uh, veterans and in, in helping them figure out how to make those transitions. Like I do some volunteer work, I do some mentoring work and it, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to navigate. And fortunately I, I just kind of fell into, I went to a job placement people for officers Sure. and I just went to this, this company that did this and submitted my, my background and my resume and they started shooting me interviews and I, I had a, quite a few interviews, at a lot of different sales companies. Cause that was a very easy, I think transition, you know, here's a person who's obviously disciplined, can work on his own is obviously trustworthy because you know, I've, of, of the service that I've done. And that's what outside sales reps. That's what people that are running companies that have outside sales reps are looking for. I got a company car and you know, all these other things. I got a lot of great experience doing that. You know, the, the experience in sales was really fantastic and being on my own and autonomous in the world and learning how to kind of, I learned the ropes of being a civilian, you know, like I had to unlearn the language of, of being in the military and it didn't really resonate like at a soul level for me. Like it didn't. The sales, you mean? The sales job. Uh, that, yeah, it yeah. was just a job. It was a job. Right. Yeah. And I fell into, I, I heard this interview on um, KLOS in, in, in California. It's a big, in the Southern California, it's a big radio station. They didn't, they were doing this interview with this guy who was doing something called the Eco Challenge. And it was a brand new adventure race that Mark Burnett, who was the, the, the inventor creator of Survivor, it was his first venture into reality television. And it was this long, 500 mile race in Utah that they were putting on about a year later. And I heard that interview and I was like, I'm doing that. I am a hundred percent doing, I'm finding a way to do that. I don't know how I'm going to do it. It costs $10,000 to get in it. And rather than sit around waiting to figure out how to do it, I, I called the radio station. I called the guy that they interviewed, talked to him. He didn't sound like a guy that I wanted to do the race with. So I just drove up to the Eco Challenge office. It was in Burbank. And I met Mark and I met his his partner, Brian Turkelson. And I wrote a check for 10 grand on the spot and said, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay. I, I don't really know how I had the com- confidence or courage, or maybe that was the, the Marines in me. I, I knew I could do it. You know, I knew I was physically capable of doing it, but there was a lot I had to learn. You know, there was a lot of rock climbing skills. There was canoeing. There was horseback riding. And it was a big undertaking. But I had a year, you know, so I figured, okay, I can do this. I also had to create a team. Right. I was going to say, that's a team event, right? Yeah, it's five five person team. And so I get yourself in a team across this finish line together. Yeah. And I I put ads up. So you didn't have a team. Nope, didn't have a didn't, team. Didn't have much, right? Okay. I, I called a really good friend of mine who was also in the Marines with me, and he lived in LA, and I said, dude, you want to do this with me? And he goes, yep, I'm in. All so, right, so you got so one, one team member, right? Yep, we had yeah. two. And then I put an ad up at Gold's Gym. I put an ad up at 
this is before, you know, this is in 1996. So there was no, or 1995, 1994, shit. There was no internet. I put an ad up at REI and one at A16, which is a local adventure place. And I started having like hike, hike meetups. And we'd go on a hike in the Santa Monica mountains and we'd meet with these people and we'd hike with them. And, and me and Charlie would go together and we'd, we'd talk about who was there and who we liked. You had to have one female on the team. So we picked two other people. One of the guys had been on a team in a similar race the year before in, in Europe. It's called the Raid Gawaz. And he had a sponsor already lined up for the Eco Challenge. And so if we picked him to be on our team, we'd get his sponsor. I'd get my 10 grand back. So boom, he was on the team. Yeah, he's on the team. Okay. <laughs> All right. Team. Now we're up to three. <laughs> we're down. Yep. Yeah. And then and then we found another two. And that really was the start of an entirely different shift in my life because I I I so loved adventure racing. I, I never I never did that well at those in those expedition length. My team, I never finished on a full team that finished together. I did four races. But but I discovered the short distance races, which were a precursor to today's Spartan and like the, the obstacle, obstacle yeah the, op, the obstacle stuff, racing yeah. the, the mm-hmm. single person obstacle racing. Sure. The short distance adventure races were basically kayak, uh, mountain bike, and trail run, and then there were special like obstacles in the in the middle that were unannounced. You had to just find your way through them. There were tests and things you had to do. I became really good at those, really fast at those. And we got sponsored by Red Bull. And so me and my teammates became Red Bull athletes. And we were, you know, top three finishers in most of the races over the course of like five or six seasons, five or six years. But it, prior to that, I I was like, why, why am I in this business of sales in an industry that I don't really care about with people that I... It's not that I don't didn't like them. It's just they, they we didn't speak the same language in a way, a life language. And I had gone through some injury rehab and was talking to a massage therapist about how to become a massage therapist and what that was and how it would work. And I decided kind of on a whim that I would go get a certification in massage therapy, not thinking it was going to be a new career, just I would go do this. And uh it turns out I just was like, okay, this is, it's time to quit my job and become a massage therapist. And I mean, fortunately I had some savings because I, my, I think my first year I made about $5,000. I mean, it was like nothing compared to, I was making over a hundred thousand dollars as a yeah, sales I was going to say there's a pretty, it sounds like there's a big disparity between outside sales and a massage therapist. It was, perhaps. it was yeah. huge. It was, <laughs> I, I thank my lucky stars that I, that I had that courage to do that right. in me because yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have anyone other than me to worry about. So good time no, of life to make yeah. that radical change. Yeah. 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 So I got into massage therapy and then I fell into personal training when I was training people at the gym and they saw that I was obviously fit and they wanted to know how I got so fit. And I would just answer questions. And next thing you know, they were paying me to, to do workouts for them or with them or, you know, whatever, however it, lo- it looked like. And that, started a whole nother element of that really launched the next 20 years of my life. My, I can't really do things. I've never been able to really do things without feeling like I have the, the authority inside, like the inner confidence to no, feel like I know what I'm doing. So even though I was in good shape, I felt like it was really important for me to go back and get the education in fitness, in training and exercise science and exercise physiology 
just so that I felt more confident in me. Not so that, because nobody ever asks your credentials. I mean, it, I was getting clients without a problem. So I did that. I went back to school. I went to UCLA. I went to a place called the Czech Institute in San Diego. I became fascinated by the body, all the body systems. I became fascinated with functional fitness. This is before the, before the days of CrossFit, before anybody was really talking about functional fitness. I became fascinated by kinesiology and corrective exercise and just started doing that. And then I found CrossFit. And I had, I had quit adventure racing by that point, And I was willing to experiment with a CrossFit workout. And I and was now, shocked. Andy, what's, just yeah. to, don't, sorry ahead. to interrupt, but no, like, what, you, this, this would have been when CrossFit was still very young. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it was, nobody knew what CrossFit was. Right. It was 2003 okay. or 2004. Oh, wow. Okay. So early, early days, early yeah. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks. In fact, my first certification, so I did, I tried it out. I tried the workout, you know, expecting... I'm in great shape. This is not going to be so hard. And it was devastating. Like it was really hard. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, who are these people that are doing these workouts? And, and why can I not do these better? Like what's, what am I missing that is giving these other people so much of an advantage over me? And so I started doing the workouts. Now I also decided to test one of their theory that this functional exercise, constantly varied functional movement at high intensity could improve every aspect of your fitness. You didn't have to go for runs, in other words. I stopped running. I went out and ran a 5K. I was not my not even close to my fastest time, but I wasn't super slow. I, I think I did it in like 21 minutes. And I did nothing but CrossFit for three months. And then I went back and did the 5K again, and I was two and a half minutes faster in my 5K wow. time. Wow. So I yeah. thought, okay, this is really, this is really something here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I went up and got certified. My certification, I think there were like five people at the cert. Greg Glassman, who was the founder of CrossFit, was running the cert. It was, I think, probably their maybe seventh or eighth cert they had ever done. And I immediately affiliated. I, I became CrossFit Los Angeles, even though I didn't have a gym. I just paid for the affiliation. I think it was $500. And that was the beginning of, of the gym that I built called Cross. I called it Patronic Fitness at first, but it, be, it morphed into CrossFit LA and um, built one of the most successful early CrossFit gyms in the world. It was a really small place, very hard to find. It was like a club. It was a cool, like, like almost like fight club, you know, like you had to know where it was. You had to know somebody that was in it. It but was that really, was really also cool. very much the culture of CrossFit back then, right? This was mm -hmm. this almost underground, open-source fitness, sort of anti-establishment, um, kind of that cult of personality with Greg. And yeah. you guys were creating this new movement, which has morphed into something much, much different now, right? It's, yeah. Very, yeah. it's very corporate, and it's very, people know what it is, and mm -hmm. it still maintains a lot of those same basic tenets. But back then, this wasn't what you're describing, this sort of, you know, this little hole in the ground, hard to find, you have to know where it is to know where it is kind of thing. And you bought in early. And that's, it sounds like that's kind of your MO. You did sort of the same thing. You heard about Eco Challenge, said, you know what, yep. I mean, you yep. paid money, you didn't have a team, you didn't have experience, but you're in. Yep. Same thing with the CrossFit affiliate, right? So you started one of these really popular, one of the first really popular CrossFit affiliates. And you went on to be fairly successful in CrossFit. Is that right? Yeah, I went to the CrossFit Games. I myself as an right athlete. On. This is before it was really super big. It mm -hmm. was the first year they'd ever done a qualifier. 
and it was still at the farm in Aromas. Right. So it was more like Woodstock. It was not, it was not anything like what you see today. And there were not people that were training all year long to do this. Right. I, I did it really as a, as an afterthought. Like it was like, Oh, I, I'll go compete. What the heck? I might as well. I've never done it before. I've never competed at this. I don't know where I am in terms of in relative condition to other people that do CrossFit right. in the area. And it, it grew it, it didn't grow without work. There was a lot of work because nobody knew what CrossFit was. And and the, the press that CrossFit had had up until then implied it was very dangerous. There was a New York Times article that came out very early on that talked about rhabdomyolysis and that was um, not flattering. And so it was very difficult at first. You know, there was not – CrossFit didn't do any advertising, didn't do any PR. I hired a PR person to help us. We, we actually got one of the best articles ever written early on in Muscle and Fitness. This guy, Eric Velasquez, came and trained with us for, I think, seven weeks or eight weeks, trained at the gym with my, one of my crews, and he, he got it. He, he, really, he really got what it was, and he wrote this incredible article. People messaged me for years about how that was the start of their CrossFit journey, and thank you for that article. And oh. But, you know... It took, it took until like 2010, like that was six years before, I mean, I would bet before 2010, there were less than 200 affiliates and I was number like eight. Is that right? Yeah. So it was still tiny up until ESPN and, and it, it became, it got on to the, the main stage down in LA, down at the Snow yeah, Pub Center. Before they moved it to Madison, it was there in the big, the big It was in LA. There. Yeah. Yep. 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 And that was really what kind of launched it globally. Mm-hmm. And then it, then the games changed. I mean, then the games became this thing that people actually set their sights on for, for the year and people got sponsors and it was a, it was a really, really big thing and it, it's changed completely. Yeah. yeah um, that's fair. Now, are you still doing CrossFit? Is that still a part of your life today? No, not really. It's interesting because I didn't get into CrossFit because of the competition. I didn't get into it because of the intensity. I got into it because it was fun. It was a challenge. And I really thought that challenging people to be a better version of themselves through friendly competition was a great way to get people to do what they considered to be impossible. You know, like I could tell somebody all day long, you should be able to do 20 push-ups, and when they can only do 10 push-ups. I'm their trainer. I'm this fit guy. Yeah, that that doesn't mean a, a whole heck of a lot coming to me. But when they they're in a class with other people, and there's a somebody that they judge as they should be fitter than, who's doing more push-ups than they can in the same amount of time, you start to question like, how, maybe I should be able to do more push-ups. Maybe you know, and and it becomes a this friendly. You, you're floating my boat. I'm floating your boat. Everybody's getting better together. And it becomes a really, really supportive environment. Now, I, I was also very careful in how I orchestrated that because a lot of times my job became holding people back because people tend to bite off more than they can chew. They get too excited. They go too fast, too hard. They don't have any form. They have no idea about mechanics. And I was a community gym. I wasn't most of the people that were coming to my gym were not training to be super athletes. They were, they just wanted to be in better shape. And so I did a lot of personal training in building them up into coming into the program. It was a combination of, of one-on-one training with group training and it was slow and 
you had to you had to really invest in in becoming a member. It it was very unlike the group fitness model that a lot of the CrossFit gyms adopted and CrossFit became notorious for injuries and you know a lot of other stuff that that is it was not so great and not the reason I got into it. Yeah, and at, you know some of that community aspect is still there, but certainly the the culture has, has clearly changed quite a bit. So that's I, I love getting that history and that perspective on CrossFit because CrossFit is one of those things that a lot of people it's either it's good, bad, or it's indifferent, right? You don't mm-hmm. care about it or you feel strongly one way or the other. You're right, all in, right. or you're like, heck no. All right. So from there, you also, I believe you co-founded the whole life challenges. Is that right? I, I did. Yeah. So in 2011, we were looking for a way to have a bigger influence over the real, that really the whole picture of health and well-being in our clients' lives at the gym. And we were thinking about a nutri- what's a nutrition program? What's a way to do this? And most of the nutrition programs that we were looking at were really more educational. And they were one-on-one, like you could work with one person at a time and help them with their diet and help them with their, you know, stay on track. And we thought, you know, this might be good for some clients, but it's really not going to move the needle for a lot of people in our gym. We had over 300 members. How can we move the needle for a lot of them? And we were already doing, I had been doing something for about 10 years. I called the Patronic Fitness Challenge. It was do a, do a fitness measurement one day, and then eight weeks later, do the same fitness measurement and see how much you improved. Kind of like my 5K thing, but you know yeah. that I did at the beginning of CrossFit. And we had used that model in the gym using CrossFit workouts very successfully. We had these huge events where these final events where people would invite their family, they'd invite their friends to come watch them compete, and they would have these massive transformations and they'd do great. But it was only their fitness, not anything else. And we thought, what if we came up with a way to add nutrition and mobility and sleep and supplementation and maybe even mindfulness or meditation or real, really, real well-being things to this challenge? And we came up with a point system, and we had a we were going to use an, an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of it, online a Google Doc, not Excel, but a Google Doc. And we had a couple of clients who were uh, software developers, and they're like, let us let us build you something that's not that. <laughs> yeah. thank, thank goodness. Right. Not a Google form. Okay. And, and uh, so that's what we did. And it became a massive hit in our gym. It, it changed the whole framework of the gym. People started communicating outside of the gym. They started having potlucks together. They were supporting people in their well-being outside of their, just their, what's their friend time? What's their, you know, workout times. And so we, we then decided, well, how do we, grow this? How do we make this more meaningful? And we thought they should be able to invite their friends and family. So we, we, the next one we did was friends and family. And that was even more impactful. We had, we had first one, we had 150 people. The next one, we had 300 people. And we thought this is too good not to share to other CrossFit gyms. So we went out to the, uh, the larger CrossFit community that I had cultivated these deep relationships with over, over time. I'd also started a consulting business where I was teaching people how to do the business I was doing. And, uh, in the first game that we played with them included, we had about 8,000 participants around the, around the world. And we had no idea that was going to happen. And suddenly we had another business to run. My business partner, Michael, who was my general manager at the gym became the CEO, for lack of a better word, the the runner of that game. He left the gym, started doing that full time. We started with one 
whole life challenge a year. Then we went to two, then we went to three, then we went to four and it, it built, 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 built. It was, you know, it was growing at about 20% growth rate every year and was changing. I mean, still today it's changing lives. It's amazing yeah. how the staying power that it's had. And it was, I'd say the, the biggest area that we weren't successful in figuring out is really how to market it because it was very, it was a very difficult thing to market because a challenge, people look at a challenge and think this is going to be hard. And really the whole life challenge is not about being hard. It's about just showing up day after day, after day, after day and doing the, doing the things, you know, like to get the credit for the workout points, you had to do 10 minutes of exercise. That is not hard. Yeah. And you could do anything. You could walk, you could go for a walk. But we were trying to build habits that would stick for life, not habits that you could just do for eight weeks. Right. And, and so just for folks listening, if they're not familiar, you, you, you mentioned this as a game, I think a couple of times, but you've gamified this, this whole life sort of experience, all these different elements and aspects, and you get points, right? For healthy eating, healthy activity, maybe meditation, journaling, et cetera. So yep. all these aspects and your folks that are participating are in this now community and you've kept that kind of CrossFit community in competition and just there was some magic in that because obviously t still today that's very popular, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a scoreboard. There's a, you know, you mm -hmm. keep track of that. We, we used to do it with winners and, you know, cause we would do it in the gym and we could keep track of people's integrity and, you know, the, but the winning and losing part, we kind of has phased out over the years because it's very hard to navigate that when you got people playing games online, but the marketing was always very difficult. And because we were doing it inside of CrossFit, it worked, it worked really well for us. But we, in, in 2019, we, we ran into the first time ever, we, we dropped off. We, instead of growing year over year, we, we had a 50% drop off. It was a huge, like sudden, holy crap, what happened? And in hindsight, I think what we decided, we, we figured out was the world had caught up. You know, when we started in 2011, nobody did challenges. There were no challenges. Even businesses weren't doing, the, doing it the way we were doing it. And uh, by 2018, you know, Facebook had really ballooned. People had figured out that if you start a private Facebook group, you could do any challenge you wanted to, anytime you wanted to, with anybody you wanted to, not charge anything for it. You could do a push-up challenge. You could do a, you could do a haircutting challenge. You could, I mean, whatever you wanted to. And so suddenly we had competition from everyone, from everywhere, you know, because it was, it was a competition for time, for people's mental thinking about challenges, not even challenges. And the other thing was we, we didn't do enough development of the software that was forward facing. There was a lot of internal stuff. We had to do a lot of database reconfiguring because we never built the system to do what it was doing. And so there were a lot of internal problems, but nobody saw what we were doing in in the, in the world. And we, we prioritized things that were really good for the database, but not so good for the, what it, what it looked like. And that was the beginning of a radical shift for me in my life. I, I had lived up until that time, really from the from even from when I was a musician and playing the trumpet, believing that achievement, was the the way to be most accepted like my internal belief structure was that i'm okay if if i'm 
proving to the world that I am, you know, I'm achieving great things, whether that's in my business or in sports or in music or, you know, going to the CrossFit games or building a big community. And when that came, what I perceived, it didn't really come crumbling down, but I perceived it coming crumbling down. I went through a massive inner panic and we tried a bunch of things that I thought initially would turn things around very quickly. None of them worked. And I started, I got, had my first ever panic attack and then I had multiple panic attacks and then I started having massive anxiety and I had to pull away. I had to, I I continued to do my role as a coach of people in the challenge. But in terms of running the game and running the system and being a co-CEO with my, my co-founder, I was, I was a wreck. I was a complete wreck. In fact, at one point I was, we were supposed to go on a two week trip to the East coast with my son who played baseball. I didn't think I was going to be able to go. Like I was, I was afraid to leave the house. I was just, it, it, I, I think back on it and I think this, it's almost insane. Like I, almost like I, like, how is it possible that someone who's done all the stuff that I've done could be afraid to leave the house? I, I never had a relationship with mental health that I knew about it. And I knew about the symptoms because I had studied spiritual psychology. I, I actually have a master's degree in spiritual psychology. So I knew about it, but experiencing it and knowing about it are completely different things. And it was, a, it was about a nine or 10 month journey to pull myself back to a place of, I, I'm still different today because of it. I'm not, I, I, you know, it's not like it's gone. There's like, it's like a wormhole opened up and I was in the wormhole when I was going through the, the panic and the anxiety. Now the wormhole still is there. I sometimes feel myself getting pulled into it, but I can pull myself out of it. And so I, I, I don't have the same propensity to go in it, but before there was no wormhole before that. I mean, I didn't, it was like something completely new had just occurred for me. And so it really, it was a huge shift in my life. Yeah, that, I mean, that obviously, it sounds very transformative as well. You had led this whole life and you said something very interesting. You, I think, how did you say it? That, that your achievement is the way you saw, you ex, you experienced acceptance through your achievement, I think is how you put it. Yep. And you got this validation of self through others, really. And yep. so it was this external validation. And you perceive this business that you've obviously put your life and in, in your soul into, and in your words, you, you perceived it to be crumbling down. And that's when the wormhole opened up. And now you're all of a sudden looking inward. And yeah, you're right. A person who's done what you've done, eco challenges, starting CrossFit, competing the Marine, CrossFit the Marine Corps, levels, you know I mean, the like Marine Corps. Yeah. You would not expect <laughs> that to be a person that's paralyzed by fear and panic attacks. And okay, so that's a fantastic segue for where you are now, right? And mm -hmm. the work you're doing now. How did that experience lead to what you're doing now? So when I tried to come back to the whole life challenge, because that was my first instinct, okay, I'm going to come back, we're going to continue to co-CEO. When, when I had left, my business partner and I, though we're aligned in where we were headed, he looks at a place to go and he says, let's go left and around. And I look at the same place and go, let's go right and around. So when we're co-CEOing and we're both actively doing it, 
we balance each other out. We, we, we find a way and it's not fully left and it's not fully right. And we figure it out. But when he had the reins for nine months really to do with things as he was going to do things, the whole, the whole kind of attitude of the company shifted in that direction. And when I tried to come back, I, I realized that I was more of a, a thorn in the side of the flow of the company, the way it was, was operating and the way that the whole team had aligned around that, that direction. And all I was going to do was create chaos and kind of hate and discontent among the, and poke holes in what Michael was doing. Cause he, he does a, he, he looks at things very differently than I do. And there was a, a meeting, a staff meeting in particular that I remember that I was kind of sitting back listening there was about 30 minutes that went by and most of the conversation was about catching me up to what everybody else was doing. I wasn't doing a whole heck of a lot. I had a laundry list of things that I had written down about why this and why that and why I hadn't brought them up yet. And instead of bringing those things up at the end of the call, we got off the call and I was like, holy shit, it's time for me to go. Like it just, it just was like the next day I had a conversation with Michael and like two days after that, I was on my way out because it, it just was, it was clear to him too. Actually, he didn't want to come to me and say, Hey, why don't you leave? <laughs> cause he, cause he thought that would, you know, he didn't know how to do it. He didn't know how to come to me. And so it was really grace. It was really a graceful separation. Um, it was, it was actually during COVID that this happened. This was in June of 2020. I'd helped Michael make it through that part of COVID. And we didn't know what the future was going to look like for the challenge. And so I didn't get this big buyout. You know, I'm still a co I'm still a partner. I'm still a co-owner of the, of the game. I would rather not be, but I didn't want to sink the ship. I, you know, I didn't want to put my foot down and, because it did so much good for people in the world. So I had been working on knowing myself, for lack of a better word. I had been a student of this. I had been a Santa Monica Zen Center student for seven years. I was a student of, um, I went through the Landmark education through like at five or six courses through Landmark. I, I had worked with a life coach from, the, from 1995. I got a degree in spiritual psychology in 2011. I wasn't doing anything with any of these things other than being a better human, other than using it through leadership, through my, you know, it was all coming into play in the work I was doing with my coworkers as a leader in the gym. Yeah. But, but it, it was, there wasn't a direct line of like, okay, you've done all this work now use all this work to serve other people. And I just decided that it was time. Like I didn't know how, and I didn't know really what it involved, but it was time to be a coach. It was time to use this 25 years of experience of doing this stuff, use my spiritual psychology degree and lean into coaching people on things that were, had deeper, more meaningful impact in their life, finances, career, relationships, personal leadership, taking responsibility for their life. And I started to play with it. I'd had a couple clients who, when I sold the gym, stayed on as as clients. So I had a little bit of experience doing that. And 
I, I enrolled in a coaching school that was run by a person who was the admissions director of the University of Santa Monica, which is where I had my spiritual psychology degree from. Her name's Carolyn Fryer Jones. The school still is operational today. And it really gave me a foundation in creating a business as a coach it, 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 because I knew how to be a coach. I, I, I had been practicing being a fitness coach for obviously 20, more than 20 right. years. And I had the experience of the, the psychology experience. It was, how do you acquire clients? How do you find clients? How do you build a practice? And it, it was, it was not easy. It, it's, it's still not easy, you know, to this day, but it, it, it's, the work has been so meaningful. It also, for me, part of what I realized in hindsight, part of, I think, what caused the, the panic attack was also my need to constantly have more, more clients, more people that did the challenge. The challenge only costs for $59. So one or two more people doing the challenge wasn't going to help feed my family. I needed, I needed 2,000 more people to do the challenge and 3,000 more people to do the challenge. And the incessant need for more people seeing me on Instagram or on Facebook or, you know, bigger audiences, it was forgetting the value of a single relationship and one person and make, moving the needle for one person. And that's why I got in the business of fitness coaching to begin with. And so it was very meaningful for me and helpful for me to go back to, okay, I'm going to help one person at a time. One, one person, there's no system. I'm not doing a group class. I don't have a program I'm trying to build a funnel for or, you know, five steps to personal development, or I'm just going to help one person. If they have a life and they have a challenge in their life and I can help them, then I'm going to do that. And it's been phenomenal. I, I, I can't imagine a, a better career given my unique set of circumstances and the way the universe lined up and how perfectly I am suited to do it, even though there was part of me that didn't feel like I, I was, you know, I, I needed the kick in the ass from the universe. Yeah. I needed the kick in the ass from the universe. Uh, I, I love that. And it sounds like you got a pretty, <laughs> a pretty good boot there. Uh -huh. And I love what you're doing. I've, I've been on your website and the way that you, if you will, pitch your services is exactly what you just said. Well, I don't have a program. I don't have these steps. I don't have, you're not going to, you know, like you said, I'm not going to put you in a funnel and move you from this program to this program. It's if you're a human with that, that you're struggling with something, I may be uniquely qualified to help you with that. So with that being said, what does your clientele typically look like? What are folks coming mm -hmm. to you? What do they look like and what are their issues? Just yep. and a very broad, broad, high level strokes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, first of all, they're, they've all been successful already in their life. I'm not really working with people who are looking to start their careers. They've achieved a level of success in their life that is, they would consider, I've done it. You know, they've either had kids, they had a big family and they wanted a big family and they've, they've gotten through that or they've, they've achieved the financial success or the fame success, the title success. And they're starting to realize that the skills that got them, the mindset and the skills that got them where they are, won't get them to where they really want to go in the future. Like there's something, if I keep, if like there's some point that people realize if I keep doing things the way I've always done them and I want something different, I'm not going to get something different. 
if I have stress in my life and it's overpowering me, stress, anxiety, worry, fear, doubt, and I keep operating the same way with the same set of principles and values and mental constructs, there's a good chance that I'm going to continue in spite of my best ideas and thoughts and whatever, I'm going to accidentally reinvent the same thing again with whatever it is. It's not the job. It's not the relationship. It's not the house in a new location because wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. And it's a nice idea that a new partner will make the difference or that a new job will make the difference or that a new house in a new location will make the difference. Most of the time it doesn't. And you know, the only person that you really have the power of changing is yourself. And the, the shifting of that belief and how to achieve that belief comes with the changing of your internal workings, your internal mindset. And so it, most of my clients have, are, are in a, like I describe it as like a cul-de-sac. They're stuck in a circling in some sort of cul-de-sac. They're struggling with money or finances, or they're struggling in work and they're not, they feel like they're not ever appreciated enough for what they do or by their colleagues, or they're struggling in their family. They're, they, they have a really, their, their relationships with their kids are not where they want them to be. They're doing great in every other aspect of their life. They're killing it in their business and they're, but their kids won't talk to them. You know, that's an example of, of a client. And yeah, that, I mean, does that, is that a good picture? You know, that's definitely a good picture. And I, I think that probably a lot of people can relate. And I think that's a fairly common phenomenon that people think that if I can just get this, then I'll be happy or I'll be filling the blank, right? I'll be fulfilled. I'll be whatever. If I can just make this much money, if I could just have this big house, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just do this. And to your point, oftentimes those people get there and no matter where you go, there you are. They're, these people are looking for this deeper connection that they're not going to find from this external validation, which goes back to what you said earlier as well. So it sounds like you're using your the, your spiritual theology degree, all those years in the, the Zen practice that you did, as well as all these amazing life experiences you've had to help people direct them more towards creating this life of abundance and joy and success. But that's not coming from achieving external things. And to your point, maybe these folks have, that have gotten to you have already done that and they've checked those boxes and they're still finding, well, hey, there's this hole in me. There's, you know, I don't have that relationship I want with my kids, my spouse or myself even, right? So what advice would you have for folks hearing this saying, well, man, that, that sounds like me. I, I've, I've checked the big boxes, but I'm, you know, I'm still <laughs> I'm experiencing some life angst here. Yeah. What are some ways that we can start to kind of connect more to ourselves to get some of this competence and this joy back into our lives? It's, it's a great question. You know, what people tend to think is that it's just not a lot of people come to me and, and are they're thinking that they need to do X, Y, or Z in order. Like I need to get another job. I need a new job. I need to figure out my next career. And they look to the external thing that's going to give them the, the, the feeling inside. I need another degree. I need to learn more, right? I need to, cause I don't know enough as I, as it is. And I need to learn more in order to do the X, Y, or Z. And it's, it's like what you said, they want to have, if I only had this, then I could do this and I could be happy, right? 
that the whole that whole thing is backwards. What I work on with them is teaching them how to be first, how to be happy first. See, out of happiness, or and it's not just happiness, out of satisfaction or out of joy or out of abundance comes the result that the have comes last. You you and it, instead of have do be, it's be do have. Because when you look at yourself as a person who's being Let's say you want to be a, a great physical therapist. Let's say that that's the challenge that you're having. Well, if you first think, what is a person that's a great physical therapist? What are they being? Who are they being? What are, they, what are the things that a person that is already being that way is doing? Because if you're being it, you do a certain set of things a certain way if you are being oh, the world's greatest physical therapist. And... So when you operate from the standpoint that I'm already being that, then you start doing the things that that person would do. Then you start to have what that person has. You know, a great example of it, we just watched King Richard last night, which is the movie about Serena and Venus Williams' father. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yep. It's a perfect example. That's exactly what he did, planning his future, planning his daughters before they were born, make creating their plan for their life and then having them buy into the belief in who they were. They were going to be Wimbledon champions before they were ever, you know, they weren't even 10 years old. He knew this was going to happen. And because he believed it, he, he was being the dad who had Wimbledon champions before he had Wimbledon champions. People thought he was nuts. You know, he's teaching them how to play tennis in, in tennis courts in Compton. And, you know, there were shootings in comp. I mean, it was insane that like, yeah. you don't do that, you know, yeah. and, and, and yet he did. And so it's a great example of that shifting shift in the mindset. He didn't wait for his kids to be good enough at tennis to make them. He didn't wait for the have in order to be the Wimbledon champion. He, he was like, no, you're Wimbledon champions. Now let's go. And it worked out. That's a very powerful story that flipping the script from have to be to the other way around to being before you even start that journey, that journey starts day one with that mindset shift, right? Whether, mm -hmm. whether whatever it is, whether it's weight loss or whether it's a, a, a career challenge or an interpersonal thing, but it's, but it's that shift and becoming that thing, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say is much easier said than done. Is that, I mean, is that fair? It, it is because we've been taught and culturally we're, we're in a culture that rewards having first, right? You have to have the degree, right? You, you need to have the finances. You need to have the money. You need to have the, and we're, you have to have the reward. You have to have the, the medals, you know, in order to prove that you're enough. And it, and this, this feeds our ego, this, so our mental construct in our mind we all are running some version of the story that I'm not enough or I'm not worthy and I need to prove my worthiness. Now we all do it in a different way. Mine was through achievement. You know, other people's might be through control, might be through knowing more, but we're, we're also constantly judging ourselves and measuring ourselves against a standard to which we never measure up to the, the whole psyche of your judge, your mental judge is to keep you from dying, ultimately from dying. And when, when you allow that 
mental construct that goes on in your mind to run amok, it creates and invents every story imaginable to keep you from failing or to keep you from looking bad or to keep you from the perception of failing. And it's a, it's part of the mechanism or the, the, I don't remember the word. What am I looking The machinery. It's part of the machinery that we're built with. And, mm. but it's invisible. Most people don't even know that it's happening. You know, the, the voices in your head that are constantly criticizing you or somebody else for the way they're doing something. That's the ego talking. And that's the thing that's trying to keep you from, hey, don't do that again, because that obviously didn't get you the result you want. So you need to do it a different way next time. And how could you be so stupid that you did it that way? And that's the, that's the nagging inner voice that is really keeping you out of the present moment. And it's a, first to even see it is, is a challenge. So that's what I usually tell people first is don't try to change anything. Just try to see that you're doing it. Try to see it for what it is. Yeah, just bringing awareness to that, I think, is is huge. A lot of people are surprised. I often tell people, you know, think about the things that you say to yourself. Would you say those to any other human being, let alone a loved mm-hmm. one? You wouldn't. You absolutely wouldn't. The, we, That little reel that plays in our head sometimes says horrible things. Mm-hmm. And I suppose being aware of it and then working to change that dialogue into and, and that's why people work with people like you right because it's not something that i can just say oh okay well now that i'm aware of it, i just won't do that anymore that's well you think unfortunately you, not you, how it works right yeah you think about our culture and culturally we we don't lean into things like compassion and love and forgiveness and acceptance we're dog eat dog like you need to get ahead of your neighbor You need to get ahead of your friends that you graduated from college with. Why am I so far behind? I need to get ahead. I need to figure a way out. I need more money. I need a better car. I need, you know, and really those things are all achievable, but it, it feeds our neuroses to pursue it from the standpoint of judgment, from the standpoint of I'm not enough. When you realize that you are, you are and always have been enough in the spiritual context. You, you, there's never been a moment in your life that you're not enough. I mean, literally it's the mental processing that, that causes that. And when, when you realize that and you start to take that on and you start to live in a place of self-acceptance, not, not self-acceptance from the standpoint of I'm never going to create a goal for myself in the future, but I accept where I am today. I'm not standing in lack today. I'm standing in enough today and I have goals for next year. And when you're, when you're standing in enough, there's a, there's a confidence about, about you that comes, that comes into play. There's a, there's a peacefulness that comes about you that comes into play that allows you to be a better version of yourself so that you can step forward into the unknown and, achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. I love that. And that's very eloquently said. And when I hear you say that, I'm thinking, okay, so now when I'm making these decisions for self-improvement, and we'll just use weight loss, because that's an easy one, as opposed to making that from a place of I'm not enough, or I'm guilty, or I'm ashamed, or I feel bad about myself. But it's rather that acceptance, I am enough, I'm perfect as I am. And I'm, I realize that in loving myself, 
that I can do things that honor my body and that will change my behavior. So now all of a sudden I've changed that mindset from I'm I'm not enough, I'm guilty, I'm overweight, and why am I, you know, I, I can, why can I never get this right to, I'm making this decision for myself out of self-love, out of self-respect. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, honoring the, the fact that that's a much easier thing for me to stand here and just say than to yeah. incorporate even into my own life. And people that have done a lot of inner work still battle with this years. I'm sure you'd be the first to admit that you don't have this 100%, right? Nobody does, right? It's, yeah. But and it's a journey, not a, not a destination. But I I love that you talk about you've never there's never been a time when you're not enough, and that includes right now, includes every minute that you've ever been alive, and for as long as you ever will be alive. Well, Andy, as as we're kind of wrapping up here today, what would you? What is your general life advice for folks? I mean, other than I think that was very profound where we just went there with the you've never not been enough. But how do we really become self actualized? I suppose here and now, those of us that are over fifty, we've had a lot of life experience. We carry, but we also that experience is wonderful, but it's also a lot of baggage. How do we? How do we move forward into this? this kind of life you're talking about where we're a little more connected to ourselves and can experience the kind of success, if you will, that you're talking about? It's a great question, you know, and I'm, I'm asked it a lot. And, and really there, there are a few things. The, the first one, and this is so counter to what the world is encountering right now, but is slowing down the, the speed at which we're on this flywheel that is picking up speed. It's almost become out of control, the speed at which the world is moving forward and progressing forward. And we can't keep up. And our soul and, and heart moves at a completely different speed than our head and our mind. And our, our head was never meant to be the sole perpetrator or sole purveyor of what to do in our life, to, to be the lead. We were meant to operate from a heart center and a, and a spirit center, which is more down in the gut, and use that in accordance with the, with the mind. But right, we become a mental society that's operating at this frenzied pace, and we, we can't connect to what's truly important to us in our life. And so the first thing is, is an allowing space. I use, that, I use meditation, but, but if you don't want to meditate, no big deal. You've, you've got to start to give yourself room to slow down, whether that's going for walks out in nature or giving yourself the time each day to sit down and read a book. It's not watching TV. It's not more social media. That's just increasing the speed of the flywheel. An another area is to, to lean into self-compassion and self-forgiveness. The, the judgment of ourselves is also on an out-of-control flywheel. Like we are operating in constant judgment of ourselves and constant judgment of, of other people. And all that does is serve the devil inside of us. It, it serves the part of us that, that keeps us feeling like we're not enough and we'll never be enough. And it, it doesn't come from changing careers and trying to be enough in the next career or moving your house and trying to have enough in the next house or getting another car, or having another kid, or whatever it is, or making more money. Because the minute you make more money, that becomes not the next thing that's not enough. So leaning into compassion, forgiveness, 
it's not it's not sexy it's not something that it's kind of like the way i described the whole life challenge it's not hard it's actually you have to you have to slow down and treat yourself with kindness and people are much more willing and desiring to with themselves and they are to acknowledge themselves. They're, they think that by acknowledging themselves or by treating themselves with compassion, that they'll somehow let themselves off the hook for something that they didn't do good enough and they will not learn the lesson that they needed to learn. And nothing could be further from the truth. The, the lessons come through love. And the, the, the more love you can bring into your own self your own being, the more you can fill your cup with love, the more your cup is spilling over and the more you can share that love with other people. Without your own self-love, it's very difficult to love even your family. So those are those are really the big ones. And that's a lot. I just said a lot. but You did um, say a lot. No, and I love that because, and it's counter to what we see in our culture today, right? I mean, just taking the time to slow down and would you say lean into that self-compassion and forgiveness and my goodness, to fill our cup with love. I love that imagery that if we can just fill ourselves all the way full, full, full of love until it actually flows out of us and touches others around us, right? I, I think that that really, that goes a long way towards, quote unquote, happiness and joy, but in giving purpose to our lives, right? Yeah, I, I help people shift their context of what they have considered selfish which is too right. much focus on themselves, but but most people in the world are so not focused on themselves and focused on everyone else and everything mm -hmm. else that they're at such a deficit of that self-love. Everything will get better in your life when you've filled your cup, in it, you know, especially in your family, yeah. your, your family. And you, but you, it's got to come from this authentic place of, I want to serve my family and by by making sure my oxygen mask is on first, I can breathe, I can eat, I am full of love, the love can come out. Otherwise, it's, 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 it's all inauthentic, and it's very difficult to ma manufacture that. Yeah, right on. Amen. Well, Andy, I, th I think we're going to leave it there for today. Perhaps we can dig deeper into some of what we talked about today on a future yeah, episode. Cool. But before we let you go... Uh, man, you've accomplished a lot in your life. Sounds like you're in a really good place. Love what you're doing now. We need more voices like yours out there. But what's next for you? What's on the horizon in this coming year? You know, I do what I preach. So I've had to really learn how to slow down myself. I, 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 I have a very achievement mindset. So every time I look at my whiteboard with my numbers and my goals on it, I have to think, okay, how can I be of best service? And if I'm being of service to other people, the, the fruits of that labor will, they will come back to me, whether that's this year or it's the next year. As long as I see, if I go by the B, do you have, mm -hmm. if, if I'm being of service, I will do the things that someone who is of service does. And I will have ultimately what I want in my life. I just have to maintain that orientation. So, you know, I, I, I'm building my client base. I'm doing some group coaching, some group things for the first time. I'm coming up in the new year. But it's really more of the same stuff. And, and deepening my own inner compass and my inner guidance systems, my own spiritual practice. 
I'm I, I'm one of those people who can't get enough of deepening my understanding of of how I work and how spirit works in my life and consciousness, and uh, that's a never ending journey. I think so. I think you're right. Doing. I think that that's is a never ending journey. Yeah. <laughs> well, Andy, somebody listening to this wants to uh, connect with you, potentially work with you. What's the best way for folks to connect with you? I am uh, very unoriginal. I'm Andy Petronic everywhere. So Andy Petronic on Instagram, Andy Petronic on Facebook, andypetronic.com. Those are the best ways. So yeah, I'd be happy to happy to hear from you if you're interested in talking about anything. Well, great. And folks, I will drop all of that into the show notes. You can find that there. And that's Andy Petronic. That's P-E-T-R-A-N-E-K. Did I get that right? You got it. Yep. You got it. Just yep. all run together. Yeah. So in all the socials or andypetronic.com. Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing all of your wisdom, your love, your compassion, your insight with us. You are a fantastic ambassador for healthy aging. Your message is just so timely. And I wish you all the, the best in all your future endeavors. Thank you so much. It's been, been a pleasure being here. Okay, folks, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. You can find the links to all the resources we discussed in this episode over at silveredgefitness.com slash episode 103. And you can continue the conversation over there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on today's show. As we wrap up our time together today, you can show your support for this show in two important ways. One is to tell a friend about this podcast and encourage them to give it a listen. The second is to give this podcast a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and be sure to subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future episodes. I also want to let you know that if you've enjoyed this podcast, I have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. There you'll find guides with my top tips on exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you in your health and wellness journey. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today. And until next time, stay strong. <laughs>